0: Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host Yingyi An Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabah Capital.
1: And Ying is joined, as always, by Chris Joy. Uh, I'm a Portfolio Manager, also at Coolabah Capital.
0: Chris. After the unprecedented interest rate shock of Feb 2021, which saw the Osborne Composite Bond Index lose a record 3.6% in that month alone, March provided some more normality and mean reversion for fixed-rate bonds, suffering under the weight of rising long-term interest rates. In March, the Osborne Composite Bond Index rebounded 0.8%, with Koolabar's active composite bond strategy outperforming materially with its 1.18% gross return. Note, this is an in only product that is not available to retail investors, with returns quoted on a gross basis because fees are confidential. Over the 12 months to the end of March 2021, Hulabar's active composite bond strategy has returned 5.3% gross compared to the composite bond index's minus 1.8%, outperforming by a non-trivial 7.1% over this complex and volatile period. This recovery was driven by the expected consolidation in 10-year government bond yields. Since hitting a recent peak north of 1.9% on the 26th of Feb, the Aussie 10-year government bond yield has range traded between 1.65% and 1.84%, finishing March at 1.79%.
1: Yeah, that's right, Ying. Koulber has argued that with the neutral nominal RBA cash rate, likely to currently lie somewhere between two and two and a half percent, there is a natural short to medium term ceiling on how far long term interest rates can realistically climb. And here it's useful noting that the 10 year government bond yield simply reflects the market's best guess of the RBA's cash rate over the next decade, plus a risk premium or so-called term premium for interest rate volatility. And this idea that the neutral cash rate should exert a restraining influence on long-term rates is also true of US 10-year interest rates, given the Federal Reserve's experience in 2018 when it lifted its cash rate to 2.25%. Only thereafter having to aggressively reverse out these interest rate hikes after a highly adverse reaction in risk markets and equities particularly to the spectre of elevated discount rates. The U.S. 10-year government bond yield actually increased to more than 3.2% in August 2018 as a result of upside surprises to wages growth, which printed above 3.5% as the U.S. jobless rate fell below 4% a year for the first time since the early 2000s. Now, Ying, is for the importance of any doubt, Kulabar firmly believes the directional trend for 10-year interest rates is to gradually creep higher as the global economy recovers, output gaps close, unemployment rates converge back, to their nairos in the 3% band, and wages growth inevitably starts to reignite. While Kulabar is not concerned at all about inflation in the short term, save for temporary base effect-driven spikes this year as COVID-induced deflation drops out of the annual numbers, we do think that central banks in developed economies with positive population growth will be successful in restoring consumer price inflation to their targets. In fact, we think there is a risk that inflation overshoots these targets in countries such as Australia and the US, that are not being hollowed out by negative population growth. And here, of course, I'm thinking of the exemplar in the case of Japan. Yet that contingency is likely several years away and would be considered by some monetary policy mavens as a high-quality problem to have to contend with.
0: Yes, Chris. In the floating rate bond world, which is relatively untroubled on a first-order basis by interest rate increases, much more of the same. The Osman FRN Index, or the Floating Rate Note Index, recorded a tiny 0.01% return after its rare 0.02% loss in February. Coolabar's suite of zero interest rate duration, A to AA rated daily liquidity active strategies continued to outperform. The standouts in March were our long short absolute return funds. The zero duration average AA minus rated Insto only long short opportunity strategy returned 1.85% gross in March, boosting its total return to 18.05% since its inception on the 1st of May 2020. And that's not an annualized number. Once again, this Insto only product is not available to retail investors. With all return references, please also note that past performance is no guide to future returns and you should read the product PDS to better understand its risks. Please also listen to our disclaimer at the end of this podcast. In a similar vein, the zero duration average AA- rated long short credit fund returned 0.79% gross or between 0.57% to 0.63% net in March, lifting its total return over the 12 months to March to 20.4% gross. That's between 166 to 16.8% net. Note that over the 12-month period to end February, not March, 2021, which includes both the enormous credit shock in March 2020 and the similarly historic interest rate shock in February 2021, the long short credit fund returned 11.2% gross, or between 8 to 8.2% net. In the much lower volatility cash-enhanced world, as defined by managed fund data experts FE Fund Info, Coulomba's zero-duration, average A-plus rated, Smarter Money Higher Income and Smarter Money Funds respectively returned 0.19% gross or between 0.13 to 0.14% net and 0.16% gross or 0.1% net in March compared to the Osborne Bank Bill Index's 0% return and the Osborne FRN Index's 0.01% payoff. Over the last 12 months, The Smarter Money Higher Income Fund has returned 6.2% gross or between 4.9% to 5% net. The Smarter Money Fund has returned 5.2% gross or between 4.1% to 4.2% net over the same period. Credit spreads in March were relatively subdued. Coulabar's proprietary constant maturity indices had five-year major bank senior bond spreads effectively unchanged at about 42 basis points above the quarterly bank bill swap rate or BBSW up ever so slightly from 41 basis points at the end of February.
1: Beginning is with the RBA's $180 billion term funding facility (laughs) expiring in June, it is reasonable to expect that bank funding costs will start to normalise higher over time. Indeed, we've seen BBSW lift from one basis point to almost four basis points since the middle of February. In this context, one of the most interesting developments in local financial markets has been ANZ breaking the drought of senior bank bond supply with a surprising $1.2 billion issue of a 12-month bond just one day prior to the end of the March quarter. So why did ANZ raise this money when it is ostensibly carrying significant excess funding given a huge surge in deposits since the COVID-19 crisis? Without getting too wonky, it would appear that the major bank's liquidity coverage ratios, also known as LCRs, are starting to decline as a result of several influences. LCI simply measure the size of a bank's stock of high-quality liquid assets, or HQLA, relative to the bank's net cash outflows, known as NCOs, in what is a 30-day liquidity stress test. These net cash outflows try to capture the risk of a bank run if deposits rush out the door. When liquidity coverage ratios fall below a target threshold of around 125%, banks have to buy more high-quality liquid assets to boost them back up. And the only investments that are sufficiently liquid to count as HQLA are Commonwealth and state government bonds. To fund these purchases, banks have to raise money. One might therefore speculate that ANZ's sudden $1.2 billion senior deal was executed to boost a declining LCR. It was interestingly followed immediately by Macquarie Bank announcing a five-year senior bond offer in pound sterling, which was subsequently withdrawn after APRA pinged Macquarie for fudging its liquidity calculations.
0: The question, of course, Chris, is what is pressuring liquidity coverage ratios? One driver could be a shift from term deposits to at-call deposits, given their relative interest rates are converging, where at-call accounts are hit with more punitive runoff or net cash outflow assumptions. Another might be a move from retail to business deposits, which also carry a higher runoff rate. Retail deposits are assumed to be stickier. A third driver would be APRA's prudent decision to reduce the size of the committed liquidity facility from $223 billion late last year to $139 billion today, as the quantum of available high-quality liquid assets, i.e. government bonds, has soared care of big budget deficits. The committed liquidity facility was originally established when Australia had rather unique, almost no government bonds on issue. That's no longer a problem with about $1.2 trillion outstanding. Instead of holding liquid government bonds, the committed liquidity facility allowed banks to substitute in high-yielding and yet much more illiquid home loans, senior bank bonds, and AAA-rated residential mortgage-backed securities. As APRA sensibly shrinks the committed liquidity facility, banks have to replace these illiquid assets with high-quality liquid assets to bring them back into line with best practice around the world. There are other subtle and not-so-subtle sources of high-quality liquid asset demand, which have the important byproduct of keeping the interest rates on these bonds lower than they might otherwise be. For example, APRA has forced Westpac to increase its net cash outflow assumption by 10% as a punishment for fudging its liquidity calculations and last week it hit Macquarie with a 15% increase in its net cash outflows for making the same mistake. The banks expect their balance sheet growth to start normalising over the next year, which will require them to bid for more high quality liquid assets again. A final buyer of high quality liquid assets is naturally the RBA via its bond purchasing or quantitative easing program, which seeks to slow the ascent of five to 10 year Australian interest rates as the local economy recovers. A former RBA director, John Edwards, commented that Martin Place, quote, has to stay in the bond buying business for quite a while because it'll be awkward for us if the Aussie dollar goes much over 80 US cents, end quote. It's safe to say that this reflects most elite thinking on the subject.
1: You ought to agree with that, Yingyi. After some early problems when the market questioned the credibility of the RBA's commitment to QE, the policy has increasingly become a striking success. Before the RBA launched QE, Aussie 10-year interest rates were more than 30 basis points above US 10-year rates. At one point, that excess jumped to around 45 basis points. And yet today, the difference has fallen back into the single-digit range. This has helped keep the Aussie-US dollar cross, which is currently trading below US 77 cents, and Australia's trade-weighted exchange rate about 5% lower than they would have otherwise been which is helping exporters struggling with China's trade war, and local businesses competing with imports that have been artificially cheapened by foreign central banks' comparatively more aggressive QE policies. Kuloba has long asserted, actually since February this year, that a third round of QE is all but certain in October this year, with the high probability case that the RBA maintains the current run rate of buying $100 billion of bonds every six months. Any diminution of the RBA's commitment to QE is likely to force the Aussie dollar much higher and unnecessarily hamper our economy vis-a-vis the rest of the world. Westpac's chief economist, Bill Evans, has been one of the most consistent advocates of the need for QE and recently upgraded his forecast for the size of the RBA's third round of QE, commencing in the final quarter of 2020 from $50 billion to $100 billion. And I quote Evans, were the RBA to taper QE, it will expose the Aussie dollar and signal to the market that it has begun tightening, which could expose the recovery to unnecessary pressure. Evans added that the RBA has, quote, a reasonable case to argue that QE has lowered Australian long bond rates by about 30 basis points, end quote. And apologies, folks, for my poor Bill Evans impression. But Evans' analysis supports Martin Place's argument that it has kept the exchange rate 5% lower than it would otherwise be in the absence of QE. While there have been calls for the RBA to increase the size of its bond purchases, the fact that it is maintaining them as Commonwealth and state budget deficits are coming in much lower than the market expected means that QE is much more impactful. That is, we are indeed getting a de facto QE increase.
0: Chris, turning back to credit spreads, five-year major bank tier 2 bond spreads compressed somewhat from 144 basis points to 133 basis points above BBSW or the bank bill swap rate in March, a touch below their previous post-GFC tights at 135 basis points in June 2018. The ASX hybrid market was a little weaker with five-year major bank hybrid spreads expanding from 274 basis points to 277 basis points as investors continued to digest the two new deals from Macquarie and CBA. Macquarie's expensively priced $725 million MQGPE hybrid has not performed, which is why we mostly avoided it, trading around its re-offer price of $100. We had high hopes for CBA's new $1.2 billion hybrid CBA-PJ, which priced with a decent 12 basis point concession and listed this month with a modest premium to its $100 face value. Importantly, size-wise, CBA-PJ is very small for a major bank deal, which should provide for a constructive technical tailwind. March was a tale of two months in the semi-government bond market. For example, Coulabar's constant maturity indices for 10-year Victorian government bond spreads over and above Commonwealth government bonds jumped from 24 basis points to 29 basis points between the end of February and the 10th of March. And then a short squeeze helped normalise spreads back down to 22 basis points by the end of the month. These levels are, however, still materially wide for the recent heights, implying that there is non-trivial runway left.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that, years you know, Indeed, investors appear not to be pricing in a large diminution in government bond supply of the remainder of 2021. Kulibar estimates that the Commonwealth budget is likely to be more than $64 billion smaller than Treasury first forecast in November last year. As the economy massively outperforms, the government's doer projections. The same insights apply to state government budgets, which are likely to be a fraction of the state's pessimistic projections late last year, care of much larger than expected stamp duty payroll tax and GST revenues. This will in turn force the credit rating agency, S&P, to try to find new explanations to rationalise its silly downgrades of New South Wales and Victoria from the AAA to AA bans on the basis of both budget forecasts and S&P extrapolations that were frankly totally wrong. In time, we predict that S&P will also be compelled to take Australia's AAA rating off its current negative outlook as the budget outcome is dramatically surprised to the upside.
0: Well, Chris, in March, the RBA also delivered some surprises. The Governor, Phil Lowe, tendered an incredibly important speech in which he revealed that the RBA has materially revised down its estimate of the fully employed jobless rate proxied by the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment known as the Nairu, from around 4.5% to the low fours. In fact, Lowe stated that it could be in the threes. Now, Kulava had argued that the NIRU might be in the threes in the AFR in the week before the speech, opining that, quote, while estimating exactly where full employment lies is a notoriously tricky exercise. The US experience may cause RBA Governor Phil Lowe to wonder if we need a three-point something rather than something jobless rate to stimulate similar earnings growth here, end quote. The RBA further doubled down on yield curve control, dismissing economists and market forecasts that they will drop it this year, and strongly rejecting market pricing of rate hikes commencing later next year as low argued rates are likely to remain near zero until at least 2024. The RBA again clearly signaled that a third round of QE or QE3 will come after the second $100 billion QE2 tranche, which expires in Q4 this year, in line with Koulibar's long-held forecasts, and further communicated its willingness to temporarily increase QE if required to smooth market disruptions. And the RBA reiterated that it is singularly focused on getting the jobless rate down to the Nairu to lift record low wages growth of 1.4% to over 3%, which will return core inflation to the RBA's 2 3% target ban. This key driver of RBA policy is something that Coolabar has repeatedly stressed in its advice to clients, with history suggesting that it would take considerable time and substantial monetary stimulus to achieve this goal.
1: Now, ying Yan Cheng, a few final words on house prices. Contrary to popular myth, there is no housing affordability crisis in our view. Quite the opposite, in fact. Housing has not been this affordable in a very long time. Indeed, Aussie house prices are surging precisely because residential property has suddenly become much cheaper than it used to be. Our purchasing power has improved dramatically because of several key influences. First, the federal government's unprecedented fiscal stimulus prevented a large number of Australians from losing their jobs, while contributing to a substantial increase in overall household incomes. Second, the RBA's record monetary policy stimulus, which slashed its overnight cash rate to an ever before seen 0.1%, bailed out droves of borrowers by driving down variable rate loan costs. Naturally, the bank's very generous repayment holidays also helped. Third, the RBA's novel term funding facility furnished lenders with access to $180 billion of three-year money at a price of just 0.1%, which in turn allowed banks to offer current and prospective homeowners the cheapest fixed-rate mortgages in history. As you might know, it has been possible to get a three-year home loan for less than 2%. Now, note the practical cost of the term funding facility is higher than 0.1% because banks have to back these borrowings by posting high-grade assets or eligible collateral with the RBA, which carries additional expenses. When purchasing power changes, asset prices have to adjust in lockstep. This is the same logic equity junkies have been rolling out to rationalise uber-expensive price earnings multiples. Put differently, it's the discount rate, stupid.
0: And Chris, as the RBA has been diligent in explaining to anyone who listens, the sharp compression in borrowing costs since the COVID-19 shock is likely to be a semi-permanent feature of our environment for years to come. For the avoidance of doubt, the RBA is really referring to variable rate loans, which price off its overnight cash rate. It is not necessarily talking about longer term fixed rate borrowing costs. As the global economy heals, there are good reasons why, say, five-year to 10-year fixed rate borrowing expenses will trend higher as they have done since late 2020. The unavoidable reality is that at some future date, the RBA will be minded to start the gradual process of normalizing its overnight cash rate back up to a level commensurate with a neutral or neither symmetry nor contracturing risk-free cost of capital or monetary policy stance. And that neutral cash rate is probably around the 2% threshold give or take 0.5 percentage points. That's why our 10-year government bond guild has jumped up towards 2%. Markets are rationally starting to price in a return to some sort of new normal over the next decade. The
1: second big myth about the local housing boom is that this is a uniquely Australian affair. I regularly, Ying, has come across the claim that Aussies are unusually obsessed about residential real estate, despite the evidence that our circa 66% home ownership rate is lower than that observed in China, Norway, Mexico, Spain, Greece, Portugal, Brazil, Italy, Belgium, Finland, Ireland, the Netherlands, Israel, and Canada. And our home ownership rate is only slightly higher than those observed in the US, France, Sweden, New Zealand, the UK, Japan, and Denmark. Folks are also fond of alleging that this entirely predictable housing boom, which we projected in the midst of the March 2020 crisis, is idiosyncratic to the sunburned country. The truth is that even stronger price action is playing out globally, as ultra-aggressive monetary policy around the world transmits into cheaper money and more affordable homes.
0: Yes, Chris. According to CoreLogic, Aussie dwelling values have increased by only 6.2% over the year to March 2021. Yet in New Zealand, prices have leapt by more than 16% over the same period. Along similar lines, US house prices are up 11% in the year to February, while UK house prices have appreciated 7.5% over the 12 months to Jan. Possibly because the RBA has provided less monetary stimulus than its peers overseas, the capital gains experienced here have been relatively subdued. Of course, there is a great deal of runway left.
1: Yeah, that's right, Yingers. One curiosity of our contrarian position on IZ housing during the COVID-19 crisis was that it apparently prompted very substantive actions. To be honest, I've been blown away by how many random strangers have approached me relaying that they bought a house last year or early this year on the back of the analysis that we published. I've also noticed that there has been a striking spike in the number of homeowners amongst our 26 person executive team meeting over the past 12 months. I didn't actually think all the millennials in our team were listening in And so it's worthwhile stating that we continue to confidently forecast total house price growth of 20% to 30% over the next few years from the recent peak in April 2020, purely as a function of the change in affordability. Obviously, risks to this outlook include irresponsible lending, necessitating regulatory-induced credit rationing, the specter of war over Taiwan, and or a leap in inflation requiring a faster-than-expected hike in interest rates.
0: Back in March 2020, we forecast that the jobless rate would quickly settle at 6 to 7%, as it did, and were extremely bullish on the immediate economic recovery. The RBA will, however, be mindful that the job data will probably overstate the strength of the labour market and wages growth, while our borders remain closed and population growth is suppressed by the absence of immigration. This will be a relatively short-term dynamic. We are predicting very material rises in skilled migration over the next five years, which will significantly expand labour supply, keeping downward pressure on wages growth. Australia is now one of the most attractive destinations on the planet for top talent. And the federal government has made it clear that it intends to intelligently capitalise on this once-in-a-century opportunity to capture the best brains in the world and the meaningful amounts of financial capital that is likely to accompany them. Over the medium term, the RBA is therefore likely to find it challenging getting wages growth to the circa 4% annual pace required to normalise consumer price inflation, or CPI, back into its target band. And it knows this, which is why Martin Place remains dubbish.
1: So, Ying, as I think the first three months of 2021 have been somewhat eerie as we transition from a COVID-induced deflationary world to one where reflation is the dominant thematic. And we're certainly very focused on understanding tail risks as we move into this new regime. Well, I think that's wrapping us. Thank you to the thousands of listeners out there. We really appreciate the time that you dedicate to engaging with us. And we always appreciate the feedback. So please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing us at info at coolabarcapital.com or going to our website, coolabarcapital.com. Or finally, you can read our latest research, which is regularly published over at LiveWire.
0: This podcast does not provide financial advice, it is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.